All right, all right. Good morning, everybody. Hey, if, if we can all uh, open our, our Bible apps or our, our, our physical Bibles to John chapter 5, uh, verses 16 through 20, that's our passage for this morning. And while you're doing that, uh, if, uh, Bill must have left, but I got to admit, Bill said GIF. Oh, Bill, you said GIF. Is it GIF or GIF? Who... <laughs> it is GIF? Who says GIF? Anybody say GIF? I'm, the room is divided. GIF? Who says GIF? Okay. All right. I, once you said that, Bill, that's all I could think about the rest of the time. Was it, is it GIF or is it GIF? Anyway, hope that gave you some time to turn to John chapter 5. That's our, our passage, verses 16 through 20. I'm going to read and would love for you to follow along. John says this, So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. Uh, doing these things is a reference to the miracle that Jesus just performed uh, on the Sabbath. In his defense, verse 17, Jesus said to them, My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Verse 19, Jesus gave them this answer. Very truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing, because whatever the father does, the son also does. For the father loves the son and shows him all he does. Yes, and he will show him even greater works than these, so that you will be amazed. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning in Jesus' name. We're so grateful to be gathered together to listen to your word. We firmly believe, God, that your word is truth. And so we pray, Lord, that you'd open our spiritual ears to hear what you have for us uh, this morning. And we ask it in Jesus' name. All God's people said, Amen. Amen. Well, I want to open this morning by talking, we mentioned gifts or gifs. I want to talk just a little bit about social media. And for those of you who know me, you know that I talk about this with some reluctance because personally, uh, and I'm going to sound curmudgeonly when I say this, uh, the social media stuff is just too overwhelming. It's too exhausting personally. It's, it's too confusing for me. I can hardly keep up with my personal texts and emails um, let alone Facegram and Instabook and um, Twitter chat and Snapcrackle and all these, um, all these platforms. So admittedly, I don't know too much about social media, but I know enough about it to know this, that it's all about that, right? It is all about the likes. The likes are what manipulate algorithms and attract advertisers, in fact, many of us, I believe, have become so savvy with social media that we know the types of posts that are going to generate the most likes. And to test this hypothesis, I have a little experiment. I've asked each of our pastoral staff to submit two pictures that they posted recently to social media. And we're going to put those two pictures side by side on the screen. And I want you guys to tell me which of the two you think got the most likes on social media, okay? All right, so... Uh, let's, let's, let's show the first one here. This is Pastor Matt. Now, when I say go, I want you to just shout out left or right. Okay, which do you think of the two 
received the most likes. This is Pastor Matt with, uh, I'm going to assume that's his grandma on the left. He's got something in his beard there uh, on the right. Uh, which of the two you think received most, the most likes on social media? Ready, set, go. Overwhelmingly left, and the correct answer is, hey, very good, very good, okay? All right, let's go to the next one. This is uh, Pastor Cynthia, our youth pastor. Uh, on the left, we have a baby announcement with uh, her husband, Pete, and then uh, they're sporting some Lions, uh, Detroit Lions gear on the right. I would have I given that a thumbs down. Um, <laughs> Vikings fan over here. Um, now, which, which one received the most likes? Ready, set, go. Lions. Overwhelmingly. Correct answer? So you guys know this stuff. All right, next picture. Next picture. We have Pastor Chris here. He posted a picture of... Now, I'm going to name drop the original Pancake House. Who likes that place? Anybody? All right. I have two of those mugs at my, at my place. Um, I didn't steal them. I, you can buy those. You can buy those at the, at the front desk. They're, they're expensive. And then a, a picture with his family. Which one, left or right? Ready, set, go. Right. Correct answer? Man. No one is wrong so far. Next picture. Who do we got? We got Pastor Natalie, the aforementioned Pastor Natalie. Looks like she's opening a, a present of uh, Pepsi there uh, on, on the left, and then you've got, she must like Pepsi, and then you've got on the right, uh, um, I think that's Natalie crying there, right, on, on the left? Yeah, yeah. Okay, which picture received more likes? Ready, said go. That was, that was about even, I feel like. What was the correct answer? Left, okay, all right, all right. Now, I was correct, all right? This little exercise proved that most of you instinctively know which posts are going to receive more likes. So you guys all know how to work the system. Uh, very impressive. Now, this is all innocent and fun, of course, but I think we're all aware that there is a downside here as well. It's no secret that social media is designed to capitalize on people's inherent needs for approval, acceptance, and belonging. In fact, studies show that receiving social media likes triggers reward centers in the brain. And uh, receiving these likes can quite literally become addicting. And we see this on the internet all the time. People are obsessed with likes. They go to crazy and even dangerous measures just to receive them. Now, in the real world, we don't see thumbs-up emojis popping out uh, in midair, thankfully. Uh, but many of us today live with a similar obsession of being liked and feeling approved by just about everybody. And these types of people try so hard to make those around them happy that they will do so even at their own expense. These types of people, psychologists refer to as people pleasers. Anybody heard that term or know that term? People pleasers. And they are identified by the following traits. Maybe you can relate with one or some or, or all of these. People pleasers. Psychologists say they accommodate everyone else's needs. They undermine their own needs. They go with the flow as dictated by others. They're too agreeable. They don't assert themselves. They rarely say no. They feel valuable only when complying. They overvalue praise from others. They say sorry when no apology is needed. They take the blame when there's no blame to be had. Low self-worth, low self-awareness. Now, I'm exhausted just after reading uh, that list. Living with the burden of always having to please people is no way to live, especially for Christians. 
Because these traits run, run counter to the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, etc. And as believers, we know uh, that according to Jesus, the world is going to dislike us sometimes. Uh, he said that we shouldn't be surprised when the world hates us because it hated him first. We can't please everybody. So for those of us who fit this personality profile, how can we find freedom from this burden to please? How can we find the courage to disagree and even stand up against the crowd when obedience to Christ requires us to do so? I want to share three principles with you this morning that I believe you'll find helpful. But first, let's circle back to that passage that we read earlier. So if you want to pull out that Bible app again, I'd appreciate it. If you follow along, John chapter 5, John chapter 5. In the first 15 verses of John 5, John tells us about how Jesus at the pool of Bethesda heals a man who had been an invalid for 38 years, 38 years. And Jesus tells the man to pick up his mat and walk, and the man was immediately cured and proceeded to pick up his mat, as Jesus told him. Now, the Jewish leaders were evidently nearby, and they noticed the man carrying his mat and completely ignoring the miracle. They told this man, hey, it's unlawful for you to carry your mat on the Sabbath because he was, of course, working. And being afraid of the Jewish leaders, talk about a people pleaser, the man told the Jewish leaders that it was the man who healed him who told him to carry his mat. And after he discovered it was Jesus who had healed him, this man who had been an invalid told the Jewish authorities about Jesus and reported Jesus to them. So as you'll see in verses 16 and following, which we read earlier, the Jewish leaders confront Jesus for the crime of healing on the Sabbath. And John says in verse 16, they began, everybody say began, they began to persecute him. The persecution against Jesus was now commencing. So how would Jesus respond? How Jesus responds at the first sign of persecution is telling. Jesus said, sorry, I didn't mean to cause a stir. It won't happen again. No, yeah, exactly. Jesus did not say that. Jesus was not a people pleaser. He stood up time and time again to the persecution of the Jewish leadership and ultimately, of course, endured death on a cross. But in this instance, as the persecution against him was just beginning, Jesus defends himself and he immediately points to the relationship that he has with his father. And this is so telling. From where and how did Jesus get this courage to stand up against persecution. I believe there are three principles here in his response to the Jewish leaders that will help those of us who are people pleasers to find the freedom, to find the backbone, to find the courage that we need to go against the grain and even take a stand when we need to. And here's the first principle. Number one, how do we find freedom from people pleasing? How do we get this backbone, this, this, find this courage Know who you are, which speaks to identity, and know what you're supposed to do, which speaks to purpose. John 5, 16 and 17, 
the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, quote, first two words of his response, my father, dot, 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 my father. And in the following verses, you can look in your Bible app, the following verses, you see the words father, son, father, son, father, son, repeated over and over again. Jesus knew beyond a shadow of a doubt what his identity was. God was his father, and he was and is the son of God. I mentioned earlier that people can develop this obsession with social media likes, and this is especially true of adolescents. Why? Because in terms of their maturation and development, adolescents are the ones who are in the process of learning about and forming their identity, their sense of identity. At that age, they really don't know who they are or what they are. So they have this unconscious need to fill that identity void with whether or not they're liked on the Internet. And for those of us who are adults and also people pleasers, we actually struggle with the same kind of thing. The opinions of others matter so much to us because we equate what they think about us with our self-worth. In other words, our identities are directly tied to how we're perceived. perceived rather. No, no wonder we bend over backwards to get people to like us. It's because uh, our sense of self-worth is connected to what people think. But Jesus could boldly take a stand and risk making others angry with him because he knew who he was. His identity was grounded in the fact that God was his father, not in what people thought about him. And while the world may have questions about identity, as Christians we have a clear answer. We are children of God. We are sons and daughters of God. Amen? 1 John 3, 1. 1 John 3, 1. See what great love. The Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. That is what you are. John 1.12 Yet to all who did receive him, there are many here who have received Jesus. To those who believed in his name, there are many here who believe in Jesus. He gave the right to become children of God. If you're facing a situation today where you have to risk somebody being unhappy with you or if perhaps you recently received some criticism that, that cut deep, uh, those who are uh, uh, pleasers of people, we tend to uh, have a hard time with criticism. Tell yourself, my identity does not rest in what people think about me. It rests in my relationship with God. I am a child of God. And not only did Jesus know who he was, he was acutely aware of what he was supposed to do on the earth. Purpose flows from identity. In verse 17, John chapter 5, Jesus says, My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. And in verse 19, whatever the father does, the son also does. Jesus knew what he was supposed to do. 
He was to be a physical extension of what the Father was already doing. Jesus had purpose. He had direction. And one of the people-pleaser traits that I mentioned earlier was goes with the flow as directed and dictated by others. Goes with the flow as dictated by others. But when you have a clear sense of direction in your life, you'll have the confidence and the courage to say no to others, especially when going with the flow means disobeying God. So what is your purpose? Do you know what your purpose is? Now, we don't have time to get into detail about this, but briefly, when it comes to knowing your purpose, start with the great commandment in Matthew chapter 22 and the great commission in Matthew 28. Because as believers, we all share these common purposes. Why were you put on this earth? We all share these common purposes to love God, to love people, and to spread the gospel. Amen? But beyond that, the Bible says that God gives specific gifts to every believer. And these gifts are closely related with your specific purpose on earth. Now, you may feel like you already know what these gifts or this gift is that God has has given you. But if you don't, if you're wondering how to discover that, my advice is this. Focus on your general purpose and making yourself available to God to love people to love him, to spread the gospel. Focus on your general purpose, and as you do that, God will reveal in time his specific purposes for you. David says in Psalm 37, verse 4, Take delight in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. When you know your identity, when you know your purpose, you'll have that backbone to withstand the pressure to please people. Point number two, what else can we learn from Jesus in terms of how he was so courageous? Uh, We know that he was not a people pleaser. What can we learn from him in his response here, John chapter five? Number two, be grounded in God's love for you. Be grounded in God's love for you. As the persecution against Jesus is commencing In fact, at this point in verse 18, John says that the Jews tried all the more to kill Jesus. So as this pressure is mounting, Jesus says, the Father loves the Son. Verse 18, the Father loves the Son. This response gives us a glimpse into Jesus' psyche. How could he have the courage to stand up to opposition, even on the threat of death? Jesus knew he was loved. When he was baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan, after he came out of the water, we know this story, a voice from heaven said, This is my son, whom I love, with him I am well pleased. And Jesus must have reminded himself of that encounter, of those words, over and over and over again, especially as he was facing persecution. Jesus' love tank, we use that term a lot in in our modern vernacular, Uh, Jesus' love tank, if you will, was full. 
He could survive and thrive without the approval of others, even the most important people in society, because he knew that he was loved and approved by his father. Now, let's, let's bring some balance into this. Feeling loved and approved by people is important to all of us. That goes without saying because uh, we're, we're human. But for people pleasers, that need for approval is on overdrive. They need and depend on love and approval just to feel happy about themselves. And they have a hard time saying no because risking the loss of someone's approval just, just hurts too much. And if that's you, if you can relate with that, my answer for you this morning is know God's love for you. Know God's love for you. And you might say, well, I know God's love for me. I know God loves me, but I still struggle with, with needing everyone's approval all the time. And I would say to that, I find an error in that statement. I find an error in that statement. We don't just know God's love and say, I got it, and move on. Knowing God's love isn't like uh, passing a course in school. It isn't like the last time that I took uh, a math course. Um, when I was a freshman in college, I took math for the very last time. And I, I, I felt guilty about it. Because I grew up in a math family. My dad was a math and physics major. And I, I took math for, you know, growing up, counting, two, three, four years old. And I took calculus in high school. And then I got to college, and I was a theology major. And so, you know, we don't, we don't need math. You know, we, uh, it's not important. So <laughs> I, 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 I was required to take this class uh, called Math in Society. And it was basically about uh, you know, how to balance your checkbook, uh, which no one does anymore, which proves my point. We don't. And then, of course, now when I go to a restaurant and uh, I, I calculate tip, I just go to my Apple Watch and just, just t type the, the, the tip in. So I'm not using any, any of that. But I took my very last math course when I was in college. And I, it, it, I felt a little bit guilty, but it was liberating because now I could uh, study what I wanted to, to, to study. But I was done. I was done with math. It isn't that way with God's love. You don't, you're not just done with it. You, know, you don't just hear the song, Jesus loves me when you're a child, and then think, got it, what's next? That doesn't happen. We never stop growing in that knowledge of God's love. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 3. We're going to put it on the screen. Ephesians chapter 3, one of my favorite passages in the whole Bible. This is Paul uh, praying for the Ephesian believers. And I want to encourage you to, to as I'm reading... Look at every word of this passage. Paul prays this, And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's people, or Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Notice a couple things. First, God loves you more than you can possibly ever know. God's love for you is so great that Paul needs four dimensions to describe it. Width, length, height, and depth. And secondly, notice this. 
And I know I've read, I read this passage 20 times before I realized this. We need the Spirit's power just to understand and grasp God's love. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with God's people to grasp. Paul says that God's love surpasses knowledge. So basically, Paul's praying this. Ephesians, I'm praying for you that you're going to have the power of God just to understand God's love, even though it's beyond understanding. My point is this. God loves you more than you know right now. I'm going to say it again. God loves you more than you know right now. And this may be your take-home concept for today, that you can personally, experientially, tangibly know God's love more than you know it right now. God will do that work for you. And as you become more grounded in that experience and more filled with that awareness, that unhealthy need for the love and approval and acceptance of others will diminish, I promise you. Number three, number three, if you're a people pleaser, how else can we find freedom from that need to please? What can we learn from Jesus in John chapter five? Number three, live for the audience of one. Live for the audience of one. I noted earlier, when you look at this passage in John chapter 5, you see the words, Father, Son, Father, Son, Father, Son, Father, Son, over and over again. It's abundantly clear that this relationship meant everything to Jesus. And when you think about it, that relationship bookended Jesus' earthly ministry. At the Jordan, we mentioned, the Father speaks that word of blessing over Jesus. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. That's the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. And right before Jesus breathed his last at the cross, Jesus cries out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And before going to the cross, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus said to the Father, Not my will, but yours be done. What's my point? This is how Jesus lived his life. He was continually cognizant of his relationship with the Father, continually obeying his will at all times. And Jesus had audiences around him all the time, everywhere he went. The disciples followed him. The crowds followed him. The Jewish leaders were constantly lurking in the corners. Yet despite all these audiences... Jesus' focus was to live for the audience of one, his Father. This stands in contrast to the Pharisees. Jesus says about them in Matthew 23, everything they do is done for people to see. Everything they do is done for people to see. Uh, the Jewish leaders claim to be these devout People who honored, honored God, but in reality, their motives were set on gaining praise and respect. 
from people. They, they live for an audience of, of many. Now, again, for the sake of balance, feeling good about being complimented and praised, uh, that's not a bad thing, uh, of course, per se. But people pleasers place too much value on praise. And when the praise of people matters more than the praise of God, that's when there's a problem. In fact, in John chapter 12, John says this about some of the Jews who believed in Jesus, including some of the leaders. He says this about them, For they loved human praise more than praise from God. That's John 12, 43. For they loved human praise more than praise from God. So regardless of whether or not you are a people pleaser, whether you fit that profile or not, all of us need to be reminded, reminded that God's opinion of us, God's praise of us, is what truly matters. Because when it's all said and done, none of us will be judged on the basis of what people say about us. We'll be judged by the audience of one. And this judge does not take references. When we stand before the judgment seat, no one will be allowed to vouch for us. I mean, think about that. Think about that. I mean, all of us at some point or another have applied for a job, and one of the first things you do in that application process is to consult um, and turn in references, right? So you, you talk to a friend, you talk to a former employer that you had a good relationship with, and you hand this potential employer your references, and, and they put in a good word for you, right? Um, and, and that's a helpful thing for your employer. Uh, at the judgment seat, no references. So if you spend all your time on earth pleasing people and, and, and uh, creating a good word uh, amongst those who you interacted with, and all your energy went into that, you, you're before the throne of God. I, I kind of picture it like this. I, I don't mean to be uh, sacrilegious, but I, I, I just in a silly way, I picture myself standing before the judgment seat with this long, long, just seemingly infinite line behind me, and I'm, and I'm standing before God, and I picture somebody, you know, thousands of people back saying, Hey, Lord, hey, I can vouch for this guy. He's good. He's okay. You know? Um, that's not going to happen, right? No one's going to vouch for you at the throne. It is between you and God. Now, I, I'm, I'm driving this point home because... We tend to not live this way, right? We tend to live uh, trying to uh, earn praise from people, and, and we think that their opinions of, the, of us matter so much. It's God's opinion that matters, right? Listen, listen to these sobering scriptures. It's good for us to be reminded of these from time to time. Romans chapter 14, verse 10 and verse 12. For we will all stand before God's judgment seat, so then... Each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. 2 Corinthians 5, verses 9 and 10. So we make it our goal to please Him. Everybody say, please Him. Not others, Him. Whether we are at home in the body or away from it, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. 
Now again, it's not bad for us to place some value on what people think of us. Sometimes uh, knowing that information is helpful and it's, it's uh, constructive. But, but again, people pleasers place the opinions of others here and God's here, and it should be the reverse. God's opinion of us should be here, and what others think should be far beneath it. When we value God's praise more than that of people's, just watch the courage and the confidence and the security that will flow into your life. I was meditating a lot this past week on this concept of, of uh, audience of one. And it's a rele- relevant term for me because as a, as a worship leader, as a musician, you know, part of the job is to be before an audience. And I'm human. It's a, it's a human tendency to, you know, I see all of you folks out here. And if I'm not careful, I can slip into this mindset of, of thinking as if I'm playing and singing for, for all of you. So on stage, I'll be reminding myself, audience of one, audience of one. Now, of course, we're singing together and we're worshiping together, and the togetherness aspect is very important. But when I'm on stage, I am worshiping the Lord. It is an audience of one. It's a very relevant term for, for me as a worship musician as well. And this term, as I was thinking about it this week, it made me think of this hymn that was written by a man named George Beverly Shade. Is that name ring a bell for anybody? George Beverly Shea. Actually, um, someone pointed out to me last service, and I, I checked it. It's true. Um, it's estimated that he is performed, or that he performed for more people live than anybody in history. Uh, George Beverly Shea, he of course, was uh, one of Billy Graham's uh, worship uh, singers. So he wrote this song called, I'd Rather Have Jesus And it goes like this. I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather have him than have riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than houses or lands. I'd rather be led by his nail-pierced hand. And listen to verse 2. I'd rather have Jesus than men's applause. I'd rather be faithful to his dear cause. I'd rather have Jesus than worldwide fame. I'd rather be true to his holy name and the chorus than to be the king of a vast domain and be held in sin's dread sway. I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today. Audience of one. Audience of one. Let's stand uh, this morning. Freedom from people-pleasing. Freedom from people-pleasing. I think that applies to a lot of us. And I was talking to someone in the lobby after first service, and um, I think there's probably a specific group where this profile really, really fits you. But I think to a degree, all of us can relate um, with this need to please and with this thirst that we have for approval from, from others. And again, it's... To a degree, it's good to have that sense of approval. Um, but knowing that we're loved by God, it, it tempers that, um, that need. Freedom from people pleasing. Uh, can you repeat after me? I am a child of God. 
I am loved. I live for an audience of one. Amen. Let's pray together. God, again, we come before you in Jesus' name. And God, it's so good to be reminded um, of what is awaiting us in eternity. We're going to appear before you. God, Paul had this perspective. Jesus understood this. Help us, God. I mean, it, it's, Lord, we're human and um, we see people physically around us and, and we feel and sense and hear their opinions and it gets difficult, but we're all going to appear before you, Lord. Help us to keep this perspective in mind. Help us to value what you think of us and your praise over as more important than what people think about us. And God, I pray for this group this morning, those who are watching online and those who are here. I pray along with the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 3. God, give us the power to understand, even though it's beyond understanding, give us the power to grasp the height and depth and width and breadth of your love. I pray that this group would know that love personally, experientially, that it would be so internalized, so a part of who we are, that we don't need to crave that in an unhealthy way from others. And we thank you, Lord, for that reminder this morning that because we've received Jesus, because we've believed in his name, that you've given us the right, the amazing privilege to be called children of God. Lord, we affirm and believe that our identity rests in you and not in what other people might say about us. God, we thank you for these things. We pray that you'd bless us now as we go, that your spirit would go to work and remind us of uh, what we've learned from your word. And we ask it in Jesus' name.